You're listening to a Monday Breakfast podcast on 3CR 855 AM. Thanks for tuning in. 3CR is broadcasting from the lands of the Kulin Nations, true owners, custodians, and caretakers of the land from which we broadcast. We pay our respects to elders, past, present, and emerging, and recognize that sovereignty has not been ceded and a treaty never signed. CCR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. Good morning, Alice. Good morning, Judith. Good morning, Alice. And good morning, Dean. Sounds a bit echoey in here this morning. (laughs) Uh, Just quickly, today is a top of 15 in Melbourne, uh, in terms of a small hail with showers in the afternoon. So take your umbrella and tomorrow mostly sunny with a patchy fog about the outer suburbs. uh, Top of 15 tomorrow as well with a low of 5. And it is going to get warmer as the week goes on, and uh, it is the 16th of September. Ooh, I was just saying to um, Alice that it becomes quite a hectic time because obviously the spring racing comes on, which people focus on, and then after it finishes, it's like November, and then it's Christmas. You know, yes. This next sort of eight weeks just go really quick for those people who are waiting in that way inclined in terms mm. of spring racing but everybody who's not gets involved and caught up in it because of yes. what happens around Melbourne you know? and don't yeah. forget the grand final oh yeah well, my, my team hasn't been to the grand final for a long time so uh, right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but we've got a pretty jam-packed show today I think we, we do but just it's before a lively, one. a lively one but before that we should also acknowledge Beyond Zero Emissions which is the great show that was on just before us and what, what uh, was that thing in the can Oh, yeah, a solar window in a, in can, a can or something. Yeah, yeah, I love their so promo, intrigued. their little like, stick. What is that? How <laughs> well, does that work? Just listen back. <laughs> we'll all find out. But look, a very important announcement right now, and I'm wondering if everyone realizes that it's a Plover Appreciation Day today. Mm, no. I, um, yeah, no. <laughs> no, we, we have no idea what that is. Yeah, we, did you know a Plover is a bird? No. No. Really? A plover. Yeah, well, there are many plovers, actually. There's not just one. But anyway, I I have a bird life calendar, and every now and then I will look at that calendar and I'll see something interesting. And this morning... So does the calendar tell you what birds you're likely to see... No, it's not. No, it's season. not quite that. Oh, okay. No, no. It's I'm, sure that, I'm sure there's an app that does exactly that. Oh, I expect there is. I expect <laughs> there would be. Yeah. Magpies, spring. Well, I'm really enjoying Pigeons. magpies in the morning at the moment. They're, they're, because mostly I get, um, I don't know, a bird that's not native. I can't remember the name of it. But anyway, and, and, and so when I do hear native birds, it's always kind of a, a great moment mm-hmm. and magpies early in the morning. Anyway, Plover Appreciation Day, everyone. So uh, get your maps out. And here's the bird book, by the way, the field guide. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> you can, uh, just hold it up for everyone. Have you seen a plover? Have I? Yes. My favorite is the, um, now let me see if I can even remember the full name of the book. It's the masked lapwing, which has a kind of golden face. So here, here it is, just for everyone to look at. We're it. having a look at the picture now. Oh, yeah, the golden uh, face. You can very it good at home. for radio there. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it has very long legs. And 
and it's it, it's very territorial. So the reason I find this one interesting is it comes back to nest at the same place, and by now sometimes that place is like a, a intersection in a highway. Oh, so wow. all these cars are racing by, and then you'll see <laughs> these birds with their chick, and because it's got such long legs. The chick, it just like a little ball of fluff on these really long legs, and and the 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 parents are kind of standing by it. And if anyone comes too close, you get these alarm sounds that come out. Anyway, that's just one. Australian birds are pretty pretty amazing. So, plover appreciation day Aww. today. There you are. And we do have a jam packed and busy show. Yes. Let's get well, starting with uh, Tom Bowman at uh, Berry Street, and he heads up a program called Teaching Family Model of Residential Care. So it's all about the state of residential care in Victoria, uh, and I think it's it's all about reimagining kids' futures with this model, because you know we do hear that there's young people who are in residential care for a number of reasons, and the quality isn't up to scratch. So it'd be great to hear about mm. this model, which began in the 70s in the US. Okay, mm. so that, that will be coming up um, That's at 7.15. Yes. Right. But if we move way, way ahead till 8. To the future. Future. 8.15. Richard Murphy's going to be coming in, and he's going to be talking to us about the play that he's directed, uh, Broken River at La Mama's Theatre. And it's the first Fringe event at the theatre, um, and I went to see it last week. Good. So we're going to talk about it. Great. That's fantastic. And we've got a really active studio this morning because at 8 o'clock, Jenny Curran and Michelle Macklin are coming in as well. And it's all about a new podcast that's produced where young people are telling their stories with support from people who've worked in the field, from professionals. And uh, that first... um, uh, there was a launch, sorry, launch last week, and we're going to hear from them and a bit more about what that's all about. That's Braided, awesome. it's called. And then today we're catching up a bit on, on drug policy and what's going on. So I guess you've heard that the government is yet again uh, proposing that welfare recipients, in particular New Start Youth Allowance people, be drug tested. And it's a trial that, that they want to run for a couple of years. So we're going to be um, speaking to Professor Nicole Lee on drug testing welfare recipients and uh, you know, the research on that. Mm. And so some of the uh, unanswered questions that oh. a lot of the people who might be falling under that category will have to come up against as mm. well. Uh, it's, yeah. it's pretty scary stuff. Yeah, so she'll, she'll tell us about what's going on there. And before that, Greg Denham will be coming in, and he'll be speaking to us about, um, he's from LEAP, Law Enforcement and Partnerships, and uh, he's going to be talking to us about just what's been going on in the area of drugs in, you know, in, in Victoria, internationally, about the LEAP newsletter, what they're covering. So we haven't had Greg on for a while. He's an old friend. He's coming pretty regularly. Friend of the show. Friend of the show. So he'll be in about 7.30. Looking forward to that. And I, I know, I think they did change their name, Leap, I think. They, they did. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. it was Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. It or, was. And now it's Law Enforcement Action Partnership. That's right. Yeah. 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 I think they felt that, the, I mean, we Greg the word talk to prohibition, us, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, talk to us about that, uh, about, you know, just uh, expands their brief, mm. I think. And so mm. that's, yeah, that's a good thing. 
Um, yeah, so it's been, um, you know, it's going to be a busy show with people yeah. coming in the studio, which is really exciting. Yeah, exciting. People come exciting. in, and especially Monday morning, we really love it. Mm. Yeah, so. Should we, um, right. should we do a quick newspaper round? Oh, well, like, I, I, yeah, I agree. We haven't I done do. this in so long. I, I just found my, just before you get to that, because I'm sure that's not going to be on the front page, but I did, of any of the papers, no, it isn't, because it's a lot about, you know, Maya and things like that, but. Uh, tear gas, uh, water cannons, and, vi- and as violence obviously flared up over the weekend in Hong, in Hong Kong. Kong, and it yes. was, um, you know, it, was, yeah. uh, it had it got a fair bit of coverage over the weekend. Yeah. I think it might have been um, the fact that there were those pro-democracy. Mm-hmm. people who came to the rally as well. So that seemed to sort of get more coverage. Do you mean pro-democracy or pro-Beijing? Pro-Beijing, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I thought you yeah, meant, yeah. pro-Beijing. So they had, you know, a lot of people with Chinese flags, obviously, who yeah. were um, up against the the, 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 norm, the protesters who don't want, obviously, the law to, to come in. But it was quite interesting how much coverage it yeah. had. Well, we heard, Sunday, of course, Sunday. Yeah. yeah, well, we heard last week as well from Denise Ho that you know, they have five demands, they want them all met, and um, and they're not going to stop until mm. those demands are met. So I think it's been very interesting reading about it, reading the coverage, and it'll continue to be an issue. There's no question mm. about it. Mm. Now, in addition to um, Clover Awareness Day... <laughs> I got very excited about this new book that's just come out by Brian Tui called Secret, The Making of Australia's Security State. Oh, that looks good. Yes, and uh, so it is just out, and it's got some, um, you know, promotions from a number of pretty significant people. Laura Tingle, uh, she says it's powerfully documenting an often fearful nation that has given away many of the citizen rights. Kerry O'Brien, an excellent book about how recklessly we're signing away our privacy. And, of course, this is something we've talked about and, mm. and other um, 3CR breakfast shows and other shows as well. But my favorite, I think, was Jeffrey Robertson's Brian Tui's rambunctious account of 70 years of cock-up and cover-up <laughs> illustrates how unnecessary much secrecy is. So, um, yeah, it, it's uh, going to be interesting. I'm really looking forward to reading it. So I got Have a, you started yet? Or? No, I just picked it up. Literally yesterday I got wow. a notice from my library saying the book you wanted is in. And, um, yeah, so... Fantastic. Um, yes, and, and, you know, let me promote the local library because I did initially go to a university library and um, I won't say which uni, doesn't matter really. <laughs> They, about and, naming and shaming. No, no, yeah. le- and, and it was in, but you could only look at it in the reading room at this stage. Oh. Yeah, so anyway, the, the gorgeous, I mean, I, I think librarians are fabulous. <laughs> the gorgeous librarians said, well, why don't you check your local library? And I looked it up, and Moreland Library had it on order, almost ready. And uh, then I called my local, and um, they said, yep, yeah, it's not in yet, but we'll get it. Mm. And uh, literally, three days later, it was I, in. I got a text message saying, it's here. And I'm the very first person to read it. It's already got one hold on it. <laughs> and I expect by the time I bring it back, it'll have more than that. Do you know that. what I'm sad about, though? Like, I used to love getting the books out of the libraries, and when you'd see all the stamps yes, along, yes, yes, the, I along the cover. So yeah. you'd see people who had got it out in like the 70s or the 80s. And I know. 
it is rid of that now. <laughs> and it's all electronic. Yeah. Yes, I think it's true. But you, it's that whole convenience, isn't it, of being able to return the books when the library is closed. Mm. Oh, yes. 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 Probably, no, it, yeah. it is good. To avoid that. But also, thing. you know, my impulse is, oh, go out and buy the book, but then, oh, it's too expensive. And, you know, really, it's a great resource, public libraries. I think, really, we, we need to use technology. But, Alice, you want to talk about the headlines. Um, did you I have did. a special I mean, one? No, not really. I just saw them on the table and thought, oh, should we just have a talk about this? Mm-hmm. But um, I hadn't even looked at them before okay. I suggested it, so here we well, go. This is a surprise bundle for all of us. I've got the Herald Sun, um, and this one, we're talking on the top about the sport, stars, final fling... I've no idea what this is about. <laughs> that would be the AFL. The AFL. Which is uh, not on our agenda. No. They look very angry. And also about escape foiled. Violent inmates use spoons and forks to remove bricks at Port Phillip Prison. Well, wow. there wow. Well, that's a you know, crime and the sport. That's, um, yeah. Crime and sport. Shock, shocking. Yeah. What, what's the Australian up to? Uh, probably a, a quite a, this might have some legs. So, uh, federal MPs have scaled back travel to China on state-sponsored junkets amid concerns over foreign influence, but they will continue to claim overseas-funded study tours, quote-unquote, paid for by governments including Taiwan, Qatar, Kuwait, Morocco and Azerbaijan. Apparently, um, you know, more than 100 MPs and senators have claimed uh, sponsored overseas travel, but they're not going to be doing that to China um, amid growing tensions, obviously. Uh, this, is so, this is really so concerning, what's happening in China. I really... Mm. Uh, I noticed uh, yesterday on um, Insider's friend Kelly was ta- said that she'd been talking to Chinese Australian uh, citizens and they're getting really nervous about the language that's being used around Chinese people generally. Hmm. And I think by the West, well, the in, West Austra- in, no, Australia. in Australia, no, in Australia, in Australia. And uh, we're not covering that today, but I think it's something that will be worth looking at next week because I think it's a very un-nuanced, very um, blunt kind of approach that's being taken. And, uh, you know, like everyone, it, I mean, actually, one of the things in, uh, in secret, the making of Australia's security state, Brian Tui was interviewed by Philip Adams um, about a week ago. And one of the things they both said was, it has the feeling of like McCarthyism, only this time it's the Chinese under the beds as opposed to Reds under the beds. At any rate, there is a funny feeling, an uncomfortable feeling for me about the way Chinese people are being talked about uh, in the media. And so, so, as I said, I think that needs a more detailed analysis, but I think it's quite worrying. So I think, and but you know, relating to China, another story that I saw, which uh, I found quite interesting. This was. Um, a week or a week ago now, but it was um, that Beijing University is offering seven Pacific Island languages courses. Yes. Guess how many are offered in universities in Australia? I'd say none. No, I think there was one. And New Zealand is the same. And this is not, I mean, of course we could say, oh my God, you know, it's part of um, China moving into the Pacific, but I think what it holds up a mirror to is the fact that Australia has not even taken the time or the investment, you know, over many years. Um, you know, it's um, there's a lot of things that I think we need that Australia needs to look at mm. in relation to its relationships. And of course, 
all the embarrassing things that happened recently during the Pacific Forum. And uh, so, yeah, we need to become better informed, better educated about Asia and the Pacific, I think. We're going to go to some music very quickly, and then we're going to head to an interview straight away. Yes, and so Dreaming Now is the group. internationally accredited program from the Teaching Family Association which has recently been imported into Victoria um, by Berry Street. It is headed up by uh, Tom Bowman um, and, and I guess what they do, they, they're, they're the largest child and family services organisation but what they're doing at the moment is reimagining kids' futures with this new model of residential care and it is off the back of a successful two-year pilot in Victoria. But to find out a little bit more about this, as I mentioned, we are joined by Tom Bowman, Director of Innovation at Berry Street. Good morning, Tom. Good morning. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Thanks for joining us on uh, 3CR. Uh, I had never heard of the teaching family model homes. Um, can you give us a little bit of an update as to exactly what is the teaching family model homes, and then you can tell us a little bit about uh, the, the pilot as well? Sure. I think um, for Berry Street, they're, like you said, an organisation that's been around for a long time um, and done residential care for a long time. We uh, probably two or three years ago started looking at how can we do some of the things we do better. Um, so, for instance, residential care um, has been around for a long time, but uh, I think we really wanted to look at what's the most, I guess, uh, positive model in terms of us really being able to deliver better outcomes for the young people that we work with. Um, organisation did a bit of looking around around the world, ended up going to New Zealand, saw the teaching family model where I was working over there with an organisation called Youth Horizons and really saw some great outcomes that were really positive kind of things that we thought we could bring that to both to Australia and Victoria and that would, would translate to the Victorian context that so they were going to be adaptable to fit our needs and the young people that we work with here. And you mentioned that um, it, it, it's a program that's been adopted from the US in the 70s. From, from my reading, I think it started off with um, kids that were sort of uh, juvenile and, and, and that were in a lot of trouble. What, what's the difference with, I guess, the model that you have now compared to the, the model that started so long ago, 50 years ago? Yeah, it's interesting. The, the model probably isn't massively different. Um, because it's a, it's a framework or it's a way of thinking of how we work with kids. And actually the kids probably aren't that much different either. The mm. types of things um, or, or some of the challenges we have now might be slightly different, but we're still working with some young people with some, some challenging behaviour, with some difficult family circumstances, with some difficult histories. Um, and, and what the model gives us is tools to really be able to, I guess, teach skills to those to those children to really enable them to, to make more choices and more decisions, to have more self-determination. 
um, in what's happening in their lives and helps to shift big organisations like Berry Street away from a more institutional. It's easy to become institutional when you're you're running residential services or have been running services for a long time. So it really gives us a chance to, to shift our thinking and say, hey, what what is best practice? How can we best support these young people to not just be safe and looked after, but also to aspire for them to do more, so to be getting back into school, to be reconnecting with their families, um, to be able to be, you know, positive members of society as they move, as they move into being adults, as opposed to us just just minding minding these uh, young people for for the time that they're in our care. And Tom, it's Judith here. I'm just wondering, what age are you talking about when you talk about young people? What's the the kind of framework there? Um, from a model perspective, it could be any any age, really. Um, young people we're tending to be working with through the model at the moment, I would say, are age between 7 and 14. Right, um, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but in terms of the the framework of the work that we do of, of, of teaching skills, of, of helping young people to develop and grow, it's adaptable to whatever age. So if, if we're working with a seven-year-old, the work that we would do would look slightly different to that we do with a 14-year-old, but it's completely um, adaptable and, and able to be reflected to the individual needs of, of the, the children and young people we're working with. And what's different about this new model? You've trialled it, you're happy with the results. Uh, what, what's uh, different, that, what makes it better than what you're doing before? Yeah, that's a good question. I think in some ways it, it's not a complicated model. But what it, what it enables us to do is to replicate what we do well. So I think often residential care has been based on good individual staff doing great work. Whereas because there's a framework around the staff, it enables us to support staff, coach staff, really build the skills the staff have to be able to work with the young people that we're, that we're caring for. And so it's a real shift um, to, to putting the, the resourcing and the energy and the skills into our frontline staff as opposed to there being expert psychologists or social workers who are making the key decisions. The staff are the real um, agents for change. They're the ones that are spending significant time with the young people. So the more we can invest in, in, our, in our staff, the more we're able to um, provide better um, care and opportunities for the young people. We're speaking to Tom Bowman, Director of Innovation at Berry Street. And I guess, Tom, the other important thing is, you know, that, that transition. You talked about the kids being between, between the ages of uh, 7 to 14, but then there are some children who are 17 who might need that transition to adult services, um, especially when they might have special needs. Uh, I noticed that the program helps children, but it also teaches carers to focus on one or two issues at a time, I guess, to give people opportunities for children to learn and alternative um, uh, ways to manage situations as well. Yeah, I think if you sometimes you, you see on paper or in, in, in person that the challenges young people are facing um, can feel a bit overwhelming, both for the young person and for, for staff or the, the people that are working with the young person. So breaking it down into let's get some quick wins or some have some success with, with some small things and then we can start to build some momentum to, to move on to other things. Let's not expect that we can tackle everything at once. Um, I think the other thing in terms of that transition that we're really focusing on at Berry Street is the, the need to have more services preventing the entry of young people coming into the out-of-home care system, but also better services for young people to be able to leave and to be able to transition to family and be supported in their transition to family. I think one of the real successes we've seen in in the pilot home that we've had since 
2017 is the ability for young people to be able to go home. And some of that's because the model encourages us, again, to move away from being institutional and have mm. families come into the home and have families much more integrated into the into the work that we're doing. So it enables the family to learn at the same time as their, their child, young person, is, is hopefully... That sounds, in, as well. that sounds mm. incredibly positive. Especially because it is their own family, isn't it? Because you uh, you mentioned the word institutionalised. If, if if it was sort of maybe working towards foster, foster care or even trying to get them accommodation, it just becomes a, it snowballs. Especially we know that there's you know um, housing issues in in general. It just would become a very very complex thing to have to deal with. Absolutely, and we know when young person when young people turn seventeen eighteen, they often go home anyway. Mm. Or, or they go back to family, somebody in their family, and that may be safe and appropriate, or it may not be. And the more we're able to engage the family during the time that the young person's with us, the, the more the family are prepared and can learn skills. And actually can, at the same time as our staff, be learning, you know, how, how are we going to manage this behaviour? Because it, we're not going to see, um, it's not a, a silver bullet where we're seeing everything resolved for the young person, but what we are seeing is, is them making progress. And, and if their family can build their skills and their understanding at the same time. And it just gives us so much more chance of, of successfully um, reunifying children and young people with their families. And uh, it is the state's first residential care program for children that is obviously evidence-based and research-driven. Um, it, it was a pilot. Where, where to from now? And what sort of help does Berry Street need in regards to, I guess, you know, um, families contacting you or people in need contacting you? Um, so... We, we started with the pilot in 2017. We're in the process, um, so we have more homes open now or more homes that have been transformed to using the teaching family model. So we have, um, we're in the process of moving to having five homes across Victoria. Um, we then need to go through an accreditation process with the Teaching Family Association, which is due to happen about this time next year. And then from, from that point, we can, we can develop more of our homes using the model um, to, to fully do that, we'll need to be talking to the government around funding because some of the homes are funded differently and, and some of those don't enable the resourcing needed to provide the extra support and coaching for staff that the model wants us or needs us to do. Um, but it's an absolute opportunity for um, Berry Street and for Victoria to be at the, at the forefront of doing something different and, and much more purposeful with our residential care. And it was um, quite troubling to, to see that Victoria has a disproportionately high number of children in care compared to other states as well. So hopefully the government can um, get behind this pilot and ensure that it becomes a success. And, and more so than the pilot, the, the, the real emphasis and need to, yes, the pilot is great and the delivering better outcomes for young people in residential care is, is a real focus and for us to do that well. But there needs to be significant investment in the preventative services. So mm. services, intensive services that are preventing the need for families to be um, broken apart and, and to be able to enable more family preservation is really crucial for Victoria as well. And, you know, even health issues and things like that are things that you are not even touching on, but they it, it's a combination, isn't it? So this is oh. part of a holistic approach. Absolutely. Health, education, um, you know, anything that's touching on a young person's life. Um, and, and what we know is that, that typically the outcomes for young people that come into residential care are poor. You know, historically they've been, and, and this model will help us to change some of that, but also the, the more we can focus on keeping young people with their families and addressing those systemic issues around the health, education, etc., then, then the, I think the better it will be.
Tom, thank you very much for joining us on 3CR. I know that if people would like to find out more about this, they can go to berrystreet.org.au. Absolutely. Hmm. Fantastic, Tom. And, uh, okay. yeah, we look forward to hearing from you in the future. Same. Thank you. And that was uh, Tom Bowman, who is the Director of Innovation at Berry Street. And I think, you know, he talked about the benefits of the model while working with Youth Horizons in New Zealand. Uh, and it requires, you know, a commitment, obviously, from the government to make sure that this uh, program can get off the ground. He sounds very enthusiastic about what they're, they're achieving, which is good to see. Anything yeah. that has to do with children and families, if it's, in, if it's positive, it's, it's great, you know. If yeah. you can see the pos- positive outcomes, it's fantastic. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. We're talking about ecological thinning and subsidised logging, but we basically mean the same things, don't we, here? Wherever there are chemical corporations around the world, they're constantly trying to chip away at regulations. Earth Matters, bringing you environmental and social justice stories from developments in government and industry to the campaigns and communities that are standing up to them. Earth Matters plays at 11 a.m. Sunday and 6.30 a.m. Wednesday. Turn your dial to 8.55 a.m. or listen online at 3cr.org.au. While the headlines have subsided, the nuclear power plant is still not under control with the spent fuel rods removed from only one out of four reactors. Law needs to change so that uh, our rights can be recognised so that decisions in relation to the use and exploitation of our lands is out. Um, last week, last Monday, we thought it's time for an update on drug policy issues. Let's invite Greg Denham in, and uh, he's been kind enough to come in this morning, which is terrific. So welcome, Greg. Thank you. I, in a way, you don't need an introduction, but I'll do a little bit, just a brief one this time, because <laughs> there's so much that can be said. But uh, anyway, Greg's been involved in drug policy over 25 years uh, here in Victoria and internationally. He's currently the Australian representative of the U.S.-based organization Law Enforcement Action Partnerships, or LEAP. And uh, this is an international group of police officers and other members of the criminal justice system who speak out against the war on drugs. So that's only a little bit, Greg, of your background. But I thought, yeah, at least the people who haven't heard you before have some introduction. So thank you. Thank you. And um, thanks for the stuff I've done. It gets longer and longer and longer. And you want to take up the whole show. (laughs) Well, I thought that, too, you know. (laughs) So I'm wondering, Greg, you know, what you've been looking at, what you've been observing around drug issues, you know, what are you following at the moment? Well, there's a bit going on. Um, yeah. Obviously, one of the major issues at the moment is the federal government's move to reintroduce or try to reintroduce legislation around 
drug testing of welfare recipients, which um, has uh, received a lot of media attention over the last couple of weeks. So following that has been very interesting. And, yes. uh, mm-hmm. and, and we are having uh, Nicole Lee coming on mm-hmm. right after you, actually, to, to provide more detail on that. But yes. Yeah, Nicole will know the detail uh, far better than, than I do. But I find it very interesting that we're introducing a policy which really has no evidence base. Yes. No, no one's put up yes. any evidence base. No one said that this is the need. Um, so I don't know where this is being driven from. I, I think, you know, my, I guess I put my cynical hat on and say, well, this is just another opportunity for uh, the federal government to stigmatise and discriminate against um, the people in the community who are least able to defend themselves, which are people who are on New Start and other um, unemployment benefits. So, um, and it's always an easy target, isn't it? The, the oh, people in the community sure. who um, have, um, you know, who rely on government. Um, you know, funding to, um, and, and as my, um, as someone recently pointed out to me, um, <clears throat> they said, look, um, don't we give the government the money to spend on different services? And isn't that our money that they're spending, not government's money that mm. they're yeah, spending? It's for so, true. Yeah. And it has yeah. been rejected over the last two years. 2017 it was rejected, 2018 yeah. it was rejected. So what's changed? I um no, I think it's just a distraction. I, I, yeah. I, I really am concerned about not just the fact that this is, again, going to um, reinforce um, some people's, um, I guess, uh, beliefs around the stereotyping of, of people as being dull bludgers and, you know, those those sorts of, um, you know, words and, and, and the narrative we hear about people who um, are on uh, New Start. Um, but I think, really, it's a, a distraction for other issues which, um, you know, we know are brought up from time to time because um, there are other things um, going on in the economy, etc., which um, you know the government doesn't want to focus on. So mm, it yes. really is a distraction for other things. So yeah, yeah. yeah. sure, yeah. No, that that is really concerning. And as Dean's pointed out, it's the third time now mm, yeah. that they're trying to get it up. I think it was the Tony Abbott initiative uh, going back. Yeah, well, it's been yeah. tried in other places, particularly um, in the uh, United States, where it was seen as a failure. In fact, it costs more to introduce these types of policies in terms of testing than it does um, in terms of the, um, you know, poten- any potential, um, you know, benefits um, for the individual. There are a lot of places out there where um, people can't get into drug treatment services yes, when they indeed. do test po- positive for, for mm. um, you know, um, a, a substance. And who's to say that people are experiencing harms from their drug use anyway. There's this huge assumption that, oh, if you test positive for a drug, therefore you must be, um, you know, experiencing harm. You're probably neglecting your children. You're probably mm-hmm. doing all of these um, horrible things. And so, therefore, we need to get you off drugs straight away and uh, get you a job. And probably the jobs aren't there either. So, you know, yes. in terms of the policy outcome, it's, it's a really badly thought-through mm-hmm. policy. And I guess that's why you've been saying for a while that prohibition essentially is the crime, drug prohibition, because it's not what leads to everything that happens around the use of drugs. Of course, that's right. So if, if we um, legalise drugs, if we, um, I guess, get, got rid of the approach that we're taking, which is about you know, looking at different ways in which we can um, reinforce this notion that um, drug use in itself is inherently evil and... Uh, um, stop creating these moral panics around um, drug use. Well, it's only uh, some drugs, isn't it? I mean, my yeah. alcohol consumption on the weekend isn't um, considered problematic. No, no, that, <laughs> that's right. Should have been As far as I know, that's right. <laughs> no one's um, no one's complained yet. <laughs> from what you can remember. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, 
So, yeah, look, you're right. And, and the interesting part about this is, is that, you know, Jackie Lamy and others initially said, oh, yes, this, we'll introduce this if we introduce um, drug testing for um, politicians. We've mm. heard nothing about that since. Mm. We've heard nothing oh, about no, a that. A couple have said, a couple have come forward and said, yes, test, test me, I'm fine. I think there's been one or two. Oh, yeah. yes, I agree. Out of the 650 that, that <laughs> live in Canberra. Yeah. When it was first brought up, yes, oh, yeah, uh, Matthias yeah. Corman and others said, yeah. oh, yeah, I'm happy yeah. to be drug yeah. tested, but we've heard nothing since. So they moved yeah. up to John, John, John Setka straight away. Exactly. That's <laughs> the switch. We'll play the switch. We'll switch it to something else. So, yeah. yeah. Sure. So, um, so, yeah, been looking carefully at that. Um, a lot of concern about, um, again, the, this notion about stigmatizing, discriminating against people, um, who, who use drugs and, um, and the other area that I think has been interesting over the last um, week or so was the research that was released last week around um, drug testing of people, um, roadside drug testing, which yes. is kind of the same type of policy. Mm. Yes. And uh, the fact that there's been research that's been conducted which um, identifies that the testing is um, faulty. It, it, it's been shown to be um, giving a whole range of um, uh, false positives and false um, negatives and uh, that they're actually missing a lot of um, the uh, the drug testing that the, the, the drug um, when uh, they're testing by the side of the road and particularly high reading. So there's a big question mark now over drug testing. And, and, and all... people have been saying for a long time that, that it's faulty. I mean, I've heard this many times, but the research now is showing exactly that. Exactly, that's right. Yeah. And uh, so that needs to be completely reviewed. And I, I think at this stage we should be saying, let's stop drug testing by, by the side of the road, the roadside drug testing. Let's stop it now. Let's put... Um, mm-hmm. let, let's. Uh, Put a hold on it and, and wait until the research um, is clearer. I think too that the um, the underlying premise for the legislation when it was introduced in 2004 was extremely questionable as well. It, it's it was introduced um, at a time when police were conducting impairment testing for people that they suspected may have drugs or alcohol on them. And uh, then all of a sudden we've got this new drug testing regime where police don't actually have to show that there is an impairment involved. Mm. They yeah, just I mean, have to this show is a confusion, a isn't yeah. it? I mean, are we testing because we're worried about the driving or is it just another method of, of picking up anyone who might have used a drug? I mean, it's a I think it's another method of picking up anyone who's, who's um, mm-hmm. been using a drug, mm-hmm. quite frankly. I think it's just one of these net, net widening exercises. Uh, low-hanging fruit, you know, you, you've really got a captive audience when you've got people driving cars. There's no sort of um, leeway in terms of kind of saying, uh, well, you know, I wasn't impaired, you know, um, I haven't got a high reading. All it is is that you test positive and therefore you lose your licence. And there are hundreds, literally hundreds of people losing their licences um, they're finding now that there are, pe- there are people who can't get into the education programs for these um, drug driving courses and people are um, actually becoming unemployed we're finding that there are hundreds of people losing their jobs because they can't drive now So that's exactly it, what's happened to a friend of mine and, mm-hmm. um, and it's, it's again as we said low hanging fruit she got picked up coming out of a festival and it was like the, they were just testing people as soon as they were coming out and yeah she wanted to study medicine and she's been wanting to study and she now is finding it really really mm. hard i had a friend involved in the testing at swinburne uni where he had to go for six weeks in a row they had three placebo joints and then three real ones but he had to have four vodkas before he drove and then he had to drive the simulator but the simulator never changed 
So mm. for the six weeks, he knew that there was going to be a tree falling down. <laughs> and it was yeah. just like, how do you yeah. then do a study on that? They could have made a simulator that yeah. change. He said, well, if, even though there was a placebo, I still had four vodkas, but I knew exactly when the person was going to walk out in front of me onto the road. Mm. And he's just like, it was just bizarre. Yeah. Police, as I said, used to do impairment testing. And uh, that was seen internationally as being the standard. The standard. And I don't and, think anybody... And impairment testing is a different thing. Isn't mm. it? It's totally yeah. different. It's oh, it's absolutely different. Yeah. They yeah. have to go through a range of tests. A person has to go through a range of tests, which um, clearly indicate that that person may be affected by a drug. And then they have a blood test after mm-hmm. that. Yeah. So, um, and that shows the level of um, the drug in their system. What happened uh, prior to this um, new legislation being introduced is that the testing, um, particularly in fatal accidents for drugs, became more and more um, precise uh, and more accurate. And what police and others were saying was that, oh, we're starting to see some drugs coming up in some fatal accidents. Um, you know, there may be an association between the, that the drug that's being um, identified in fatal accidents um, and there may be um, an association with um, impairment. Um, so therefore, what we, what we propose, and, and they push for these laws, is that we propose, therefore, that we now test everyone that we pull over by the side of the road in a new system for um, drug testing for amphetamines and cannabis. So there's a this big jump between drugs being identified in fatal accidents where, where there's been a fatal accident and they've now tested and found a drug to, okay, we need to test everyone now because there's, there's a clear, they say there's a clear causation between the drug and the accident. Whereas that, that causation was never established. Mm. Yes. All they did was find the drug. There was no yeah. causation. So there's no causation link being established yes. between the drug and the fatal accident and now this new, this new testing scheme which tests everyone. Yes, mm. yes, and I can see that yeah, there, there's some major concerns around that. Oh, it is, and, um, yeah. and as has been pointed out, people lose their livelihoods because of this, and, and, it's, yeah. um, and uh, in terms of justice, um, it, it's clearly... Massive impact on the criminal justice impact. system as well. It has, yeah. So we're, we're finding, of course, that <clears throat> whilst there's a lot of people advocating for changes in policy around drugs, what we're finding is, is that these kind of low-hanging fruit, sort of net-widening exercises are, are, are becoming more and more popular popular because it's a way of police clearly sort of showing that they're working or, you know, um, demonstrating to the broader public and the media that they're actually doing their job. And, and it's, not, it's not difficult to find, you know, situations where people use drugs. You know, people are using drugs all the time and most people are using them safely. Another good example is um, music festivals and yes. dance festivals and places like that where mm. quite a few people use drugs, they use them safely, but because it's that kind of captive audience situation, um, that police really focus and come down hard on those situations because they can demonstrate clearly um, through arrests and dr- use of drug dogs that they're enforcing the law, and that's that sort of strong message, sort of sending a strong message out to the broader community around drugs, which really is a harm maximisation approach, not a harm minimisation approach. Yeah, definitely. Mm. And Greg, just on, we, just yesterday actually, I noticed um, a news item that said Malaysia is moving to decriminalise drug use. So ABC report, are you aware of that one? Yes, I am. I, I've been following that for a little while. I've done a little bit of work in um, in Malaysia. I've, I've done some work with police and prison officers a little while ago when I worked with the Burnett Institute, and um, it's been happening for quite some time. Uh, Malaysia is a fairly conservative country, and yes. they've had harsh laws, particularly around drug trafficking, and uh, a lot of a lot of the 
they, they still uh, execute um, <clears throat> people who are involved in high-level drug trafficking. And, uh, and I know in the background, though, that there are several people who have been pushing for decriminalisation and what, they, um, what they're finding, and I've probably read the same article as you, that yes. um, the people that are going into prisons because of their drug use are still coming straight out again and going back um, to using drugs. And the thing that kind of struck me when I read the article was that the government's now starting to recognise that um, it's not the drug that's the issue for people. It's, it's, it's the whole kind of setting and their disadvantage and their unemployment and their lack of housing and, and in a lot of cases mental health issues that are the main issue that, that they need to deal with, not necessarily the drug use. And, that, and that's the same for a lot of places. It, it's you know, the I've same worked, here. In, oh, that's right. I've worked down yeah. the road here in North Richmond Abbots for, yeah. for over 10 years and, and you see a lot of people down there who are chronically dependent on heroin and, and heroin is, is, is the drug that deals with or... You know, um, I guess um, in some ways enables them to sort of um, deal with or cope with their their lives, which often are impacted by a whole range of issues. And it's dealing with those issues that is the key to this. It's not necessarily the drug; it's it's the whole kind of range of experiences that, that person has, yes. which need to be addressed. And it's great to see Malaysia taking that on board. And I also I had a I did have a moment of pride. In yeah, Australia, because apparently uh, one of the people who's pushing for it in Malaysia trained in Australia, and she said... She's a doctor. A doctor, mm, a yeah. Diva. Yeah, yes, yes I know exactly. Diva. Yeah. Yes. And she said when she was training here, she didn't see people who were using drugs who had HIV and some of these problems that you've seen in Malaysia. Mm. So so this is great news, but Greg, we're going to have to wind it up. Because already. Already, yeah, I know. <laughs> Because we, we uh, also now we'll be having our interview with Nicole Lee. But thank you so much okay. for coming in this thank morning. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Thanks yeah. very much. Okay. 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 Nice to talk with you. Thank, thank you Well, big thank you there to, to Greg Denham for coming in this morning and updating us on some of the things that have been happening in the drug area. And uh, as most of our listeners would be aware, and as Greg also alluded to, the Morrison government is making yet another attempt to get its proposal to drug test people on welfare through the Senate. But welfare, health and drug treatment experts have opposed the proposal since it was first introduced three years ago. And one of those experts is Nicole Lee. She's an adjunct professor at the National Drug Research Institute at Curtin University. And she's worked in the alcohol and drugs and mental health area for 28 years and, you know, been a clinician, an educator, a researcher. So I really can't think of anyone better qualified to, to comment on, uh, on what's been happening. And uh, she joins us on the phone now. So uh, big welcome to 3CR Monday Breakfast, Nicole. Thanks, 
Judith. Good morning. Good morning. And uh, thank you also. We always appreciate people getting up early and especially on Monday. I mean, <laughs> so, so big thanks, especially. So, Nicole, can you just give us some background to what's being proposed by the Morrison government? Like, what does it look like? So, the, the bill that's um, about to be introduced is pretty similar to um, the previous two attempts over the last three years, as far as as far as we can tell. Um, it's a two-year trial. It would test about 5,000 new recipients of New Start and Use Allowance. Uh, and they're test, testing for a range of uh, illicit drugs uh, in, in three locations in New Zealand, in, sorry, in New Queensland, New South Wales and Western Australia. Um, so so what, are the drugs, what are the drugs they're going yeah. to be testing for? So uh, on the list is uh, cocaine, methamphetamine, ecstasy, heroin, um, some other opioids, and cannabis. No, just uh, I just I just have to have a little kind of shock statement here. Cocaine. I mean, people on New Start and Youth Allowance are going to be using cocaine. Um, yeah, I mean that's one of the arguments that really uh, that. Um, all illicit drugs are pretty expensive in Australia, and cocaine is among the most expensive uh, in terms of dose. Um, and also, ecstasy is uh, it's relatively expensive, but most people don't even have problems with it. So, the the list of drugs is um, an, uh, interesting in the proposal. Yes. So, what happens if they test positive? So if they uh, fail a first test, so they test positive the first time, they'll be put on income management and the proposal is that 80% of the income will be quarantined um, for uh, essentials and they will need to undertake a second test within 25 days and two positive tests will result in a referral to a medical professional for assessment and potential treatment. Uh, and if they need treatment, that treatment um, may be a requirement of their job plan. Or if they, uh, if they return two positive tests or they dispute a test, um, the previous, uh, the previous um, bill uh, required them to repay the cost of the test. So, um, again, someone on New Start uh, might find that pretty difficult because the tests are very expensive. Uh, and, and Nicole with Dean here. So does, would, would that lead to some kind of profiling, especially, you know, data profiling? And then can the security of the data be adequately protected for those people too? Well, see, this is one of the concerns that a lot of people have that, um, the proposal is for, in inverted commas, random, um, testing, but it is, uh, possible for the, the government to target um, testing to particular profiles, and it is a bit of a concern about um, uh, future job prospects as well. When people have, you know, positive tests on their um, on their record, so yes. there's a whole load of issues that um, are, are very concerning for the people who are being tested. So uh, I was just going to say, you know, what what is the government's rationale for this? I mean, what are they saying is going to be the benefit of it? Well, uh, there seems to be two kind of angles. The Special Services Minister, Anne Rustin, said that um, they want to help to identify people who need help. And uh, 
the Prime Minister has said that he wants to get people off welfare and into work. So there's two two kind of angles, um, identifying people who need treatment and um, getting people back to work. Now, the problem with drug testing um, in this in this environment is that it does neither of those things. So if that's what the government wants, this is not the best way to do it. Yes, for sure. And, um, I mean, there, there is a history, isn't there? I mean, this kind of idea has been tried in other countries. I'm wondering, how does the evidence stack up? Yeah, so this is um, one of the puzzling things about reintroducing this bill for a third time, that there's ample evidence around the world that it's just not effective. Um, so there was uh, Canada introduced it um, some, like, nearly 20 years ago, and they found that it was just very expensive and it didn't actually in- increase employment um, very much at all and it just wasn't kind of cost-effective. And um, New Zealand uh, originally looked at a scheme that was very similar to this, but they modified their scheme. And even in the modified scheme, where they just subsidise pre-employment testing where that's required, um they tested uh, something like 8,000 people who were on welfare and they only found 22 positive results. So for a lot <laughs> of expense, That's unbelievable. Yeah, I, so a lot of expense testing a lot of people for not very much um, success. Know, coming back from that. And it's a double-edged sword because it, there's that financial burden on the community and in that sort of testing side, but then there's probably also the financial burden on the community when if people are found guilty they'll need to live. So does that then lead them to committing some kind of act of crime to get money? I don't know. How do they justify, you know, what the changes that they're yeah, well, sort of proposing? Yeah, I mean, just because you uh, take people's money away doesn't mean that they stop using drugs, and so they're going to have to find it. If they're dependent on drugs, then they're going to have to find um Somewhere. somewhere, and yeah, and some some of them may resort to um, illegal activities to do that. Yes, and uh, I'm just and Nicole. I just wanted to introduce you again in case people have just joined us, just tuned in. So I'm speaking with Nicole Lee, who's adjunct professor at the National Drug Research Institute, and we're talking about the um, Morrison government's proposed proposal to trial drug testing of people on welfare. And in your paper in the conversation, you quote also from a 2013 position paper produced by the Australian National Council on Drugs, uh, which formerly was the Australian government's drug advisory body. And it concluded, and I just quote from your paper here, there is no evidence that drug testing welfare beneficiaries will have any positive effects for those individuals or for society, and some evidence indicating that such a practice would have high social and economic costs. In addition, there be serious ethical and legal problems in mm. implementing such a program in Australia. So, I mean, you know, that's 2013. That's not that long ago. And still we have a government that's uh, pursuing this idea. Yeah, it, it's really puzzling. The, the research that we have about this measure um, shows that it, it, doesn't, um, it doesn't really detect people who need help. It'll cut capture a whole bunch of people, remembering that most people who use drugs don't have a problem with them. It'll just capture a whole bunch of people who uh, use drugs but don't have a problem with them and don't need treatment. It's very expensive and the cost-benefit is not there. Uh, And it just really 
stigmatises and marginalise people on welfare and people who use drugs. So it, it doesn't seem to have any benefits that, um, that I can see. Yes, and, and very, um, I think, punishing. It's as if, and I think Greg Denham mentioned this, is if they're, we're taking the most powerless people in the community and we're just turning the screws on them and making life harder and harder. And the thing is, and it costs a lot of money to do that, as you point out. That's right. And I, I think that money would be better put into drug treatment. Um, we know also if we force people into treatment that the, um, the long-term outcomes are poorer than if they go voluntarily and they have um, increased risk of uh, other uh, other problems like overdose uh, risk. And on the other hand, we also know that if we spend money in treatment, it saves money in the community in other healthcare costs and welfare and, and it, that's the kind of thing that will get people off drugs and into um, into work, if that's what the Prime Minister wants. Yes, and, and that's what you'd be advising, I imagine, the, to more, more investment in the services yeah. that already exist. Yeah. Exactly, because we know that they reduce drug use and they reduce harms and they get people back into employment or training and they improve health and they reduce criminal behaviour. So just providing better drug treatment or more drug treatment um, has a whole load of knock-on effects for the people involved and for society. Yes. Too many unanswered questions, essentially, at the moment. Well, I, I actually yeah. think they are answered. I mean, we have the research. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, in terms of them putting it on. So, for example, you know, will procedures be there for somebody to challenge their selection for a drug test? You know, it's just a weird sort of. It's uh, yeah, a very yeah. weird. You're right, Dean. It's a very weird thing to be doing. And uh, I think, Nicole, one thing that I wondered about was whether, um, you know, they're talking about setting up services. I had a sense maybe particularly for people who are who were on welfare, the people they identify. I'm kind of wondering whether what they have in mind is setting up special services for people they pick up this way that are sort of funded on the cheap and may not be necessarily like the accredited services, or am I drawing too long a bow there? We don't know the detail of that, but the government has um, announced in conjunction with this measure, a $10 million treatment fund. It's unclear how that fund is going to be utilised. Right. Um, but I would say that um, $10 million sounds like a lot of money, but across three sites in Australia over two years, yes. it's not very mm. much. And um, the treatment sector is seriously underfunded already for the people who want treatment, let alone people who may or may not need it. So we need a lot more um, injection of funding into the treatment sector to make an impact. Nicole Lee, thank you so much for joining us on 3CR Breakfast this morning. It's been great to have your insights into this issue and hopefully this bill will not be passed and um, it will go the way of the other ones. Thanks so much, Judith and Dean. Thanks, Nicole. Organic domes are my whispers inside open like a floating hibiscus. It's so cool that feeds my mind. Solitude is where I find my time to repair, reset, and start again from livestock in this place. No friends, focus drive.
Well, the wonderful Lady Lash with Organic Dome, such a beautiful, deeply spiritual song. Now, we're joined in the studio, which is just fantastic, because it's always great to have people come in, by Jenny Curran and uh, Michelle Macklin. They're here to talk about Braided, and I love that title, Braided, which is a new podcast series produced in Collingwood by the Artful Dodgers Studios, and it's a program of Jesuit Social Services. Some of Victoria's leading audio storytellers uh, worked one-on-one with participants to tell the stories, to conceive, to record, to produce. It's a big project (laughs) and ultimately bring to life. And I think that's what you've done, um, the stories. And I had a listen on the weekend. uh, Yeah, it was just great. So, Jenny, you're one of the people who told the story, told your story. So I might ask you just just to go back and think, why did you want to do a podcast? Yeah, it, it was such a fun experience to do and something I've never done before. I'm not really very technologically minded, so <laughs> learning how to cut together everything was really challenging at times, but definitely a good skill to learn. Yeah, and, and, and um, what was the story you wanted to tell? Uh, so my one is called It Ain't Easy Being Wheezy. <laughs> and, um, it's uh, raising awareness for adult asthma, because uh, I've got only 36% lung function. Uh, with my asthma, and a lot of people think that it's just, oh yeah, like you take your inhaler every now and again, but for some people it can be a lot more serious, so Mm. it's just raising awareness for that. We spoke to Asthma Australia only a couple of weeks ago, and obviously with spring coming in, it's obviously a time where there's big allergies that are coming in, so for somebody like you, it's quite a, yeah. Yeah, I was curious, is spring a difficult time? Yeah. It is, okay. Yeah. But it's still fun. It yeah. means the summer's coming. Yes. So. Yeah. And um, so when I listened to it on the weekend, I thought, you know, this this is a serious, there's a lot of serious things here, but I kept laughing. <laughs> That's <laughs> so the plan. That was the plan. And so I thought, why am I laughing? <laughs> yeah. So maybe tell me a little bit about what you've covered in the podcast. What was What was it that you wanted people to understand? So I tell a bit about my own story. Back in 2012, I had two major asthma attacks that almost left me uh, not here to tell the tale, Mm. which wasn't ideal. Uh, It changed my life a lot. I was in a wheelchair for a few months because I wasn't able to walk from here to like a meter away without running out of breath. So um, I experienced what life is like to have a disability, and it turns out that the world is really not very accessible and in this day and age, that's not really okay. Yes. And uh, so in, in putting a hand up to make the podcast, um, you were working with Je- with Michelle, sorry, who's here this morning. And Michelle, you've done a lot of media work. You've worked for the BBC, Radio National, Radiotopia. How did you become involved in the Braided <coughs> podcast series? Well, I just moved to Melbourne about, um, I guess it was five months ago when I got um, asked, or I was, I was living here for five months, and then I was asked. Um, and I knew some of the other producers on the project, and they needed one more person. So um, it just kind of felt like a really good fit. 
I had worked, I've worked in radio and podcasting for about 10 years now. So I actually started in community and college radio right. in my late teens and early 20s. So, and where was that? And that was in, so I'm from Canada originally. I, know, so, I saw the CBC yeah. in yeah. there. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, so that was on um, Vancouver Island, which is the west coast of Canada. So yeah, working in this collaborative way with participants where there's like a lot of ownership and agency and people like Jenny, like telling their own story. It's not just me as a producer going in and recording Jenny and then working with the tape, but rather yes. like this kind of collaborative spirit is something I'm so interested in pursuing. And it, it seems like a rare opportunity to get to do it and around like such an amazing group of young people and also the mentors like supporting each other. So, yeah. And, and it sounds like a strange and weird question, but young marginalized people, why that group of people? Because I guess they're the ones that are predominantly <laughs> listening to podcasts more so than making them. I think for the Dodgers project, it really felt like sharing stories that, like, stories that not only don't normally make it into, like, the mainstream awareness of media, but that the people telling the stories had such a big stake in creative, creating them. Like, oftentimes there'll be stories about, like, we you know, like, documentaries about, like, kind of, quote-unquote, marginalized people, mm. but it's not the people themselves taking a hand in creating. And to me, that feels like you're really disallowing a whole group of people from becoming makers and becoming more active in that sphere. And I think it's become a really blurry line, which which in this case is a great one with this project between, like, the mentor and participant and, like, mentee. Yes, indeed. Yeah. And but I also think, relatable to the community yeah, that these exactly. people live in, too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think for me, just, um, and yeah, maybe Jenny, you want to speak to this a bit also, but yeah, it's just been a really amazing experience not going in thinking about like, like I'm very, very much aware of working in situations with vulnerable people, but that's not, I don't go in every time thinking of yeah. that way. It's like, oh, I'm going to work with my amazing participants and I learn so much working from them too. So I think it just creates more and more of a human understanding and connection between people where we can, you know, when we write grants and think about projects, we definitely have to use the language of like, this is a certain demographic of people that we're working with. But the reality is people are people that we need to get to know and, and yeah. connect with. And yes. I think that's something that lives through the spirit of the podcast, too, which is really getting to know the stories of young people's lives. And I think, you know, again, listening, it made me much more aware, Jenny, of what goes on. Because as you point out in the podcast, you know, it, oh, yes, you know, a friend of mine, you know, once a month or once a yeah. year, they use a puffer. You know, what you're talking about is something quite different. Yeah. Doctors as well don't take it seriously with asthma. They're like, oh, well. Just take your inhaler. You'll be fine. Yeah. So even, you know, I wouldn't. I would like to put the podcast out into the health sphere as well and get. Uh, not, you know, saying all doctors are like that, but I've certainly experienced plenty of them that are. Mm. It's kind of like don't give out to them. Just educate them. Yeah. Yes, I, I think, and I think that really did work very well. That was effective. But you know what? I'm because you just talked about the process, Michelle. I'm just yeah. Jenny. I'm just wondering how did it feel the first time you two met, and you're going to do this project together. What was it like? Just to recreate that meeting for us. Should I? I'll start, and then you jump in, Jenny. Yeah, cool. cool. Well, so Jenny actually worked with Joel Seppel, was her main mentor. But Jenny and I have done some stuff together through the last few weeks. Yeah. So. Um, 
the thing was when I met Jenny, um, Jenny is often at the, the at the Dodgers, and she, in my opinion, is one of the people that's kind of the lifeblood participants. Where you go in, <laughs> I can and imagine I, <laughs> that. I can just imagine that. And you yeah. just like you need to get to know Jenny right away because everybody is always kind of around circling Jenny and it's like such a good vibe to show up and you know there's anywhere from like five to 15 people in the main part of the Dodgers on the days it's open and like when I started working there I would always you know nine times out of ten see Jenny there so yeah just I think through casual conversation we got to know each other yeah so so Jenny what about you when you you've come up now with this you know, you can do a podcast. What was it like when you started talking about it? It was so cool. And um, what we learned to do is kind of listen differently to the, wor- the world around you. So now when I'm like, let's say, for example, I'm sitting at Fed Square and I hear all of the hustle and bustle around, I'll take out my phone and just start recording the ambient music. Well, not mm. music, like ambient sounds. Yes. So it's kind of like learning a new language in a way. You start hearing things differently. Like, for example, yes. if there's, like, a, a funny doorbell, you're like, ooh, I want to yeah. record that and put it yeah. in somewhere. That'll go in somewhere, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and how did it feel to kind of investigate yourself? Because there was a little bit of that in it. Yeah, it? there was, um, it kind of just came naturally, I suppose. Um, I've had to do a lot of talking about my story in the last few years because, as I mentioned in the podcast, um I have a company called Accessible Adventures, so it's adventure travel company, including people with disabilities, because I'm like a bit of an adrenaline junkie, and I love adventure sports and adventure travel. And when I was in a wheelchair, I wasn't able to do any of that, and I thought that that was really unfair that people my age can't go mm. white ro- whitewater rafting and rock climbing just like the rest of us. So I've had to tell my story a lot when I'm doing pitches for funded and things for accessible adventures so it was really nice to just tell my story and not try and sell it i'm just yes. trying to, i'm just trying oh, to tell it i'm not trying to sell yes. it yes and, and you had a phone call with your mum, i yeah. think in the middle of your podcast that yeah. was was that a call yeah skype call yes. she's back in ireland so um, yes yeah it was a bit uh crackly on the line but well, i loved it, it was the best we could do <laughs> no i loved it i mean this is how it is isn't it when you're putting together something like this you know sometimes you've got stuff's a bit crackly sometimes you're right there i mean you also talk to your your flatmate yeah yeah she was one of the breath of fresh air on the podcast i thought she's so funny and i really liked our little bit we just did it in one take and we just our personalities and the way we get on just really came across yeah. and, and you've done one season are you looking for more participants for season two yeah, so right now we've got nine episodes for this yep. season. There'll be a new episode out every Wednesday, weekly, until the end of the series. So that's um, in mid-November. And then we're going to take a little break for a couple months and then start the work for season two. So I think um, our hope with moving forward is just to continue working with some of the same participants to get more people involved in the project. <coughs> Um, yeah, and we're open to like new people coming into the Dodgers and becoming a part of the show too. It's not just an exclusive, you know, yes. group of people. I think anything you know about the Dodgers, it's a really inclusive place yeah. to be. Yeah. yeah. So I noticed season one, nine young people, nine episodes. So yep. there's going to be yeah quite a variety. So people can find out more on Braid, uh, sorry, BraidPodcast.com. Braided Podcast. Braided. Sorry. Oh yeah. No God. problem. Yeah. Ed, you got to get it in. You got to get it in, or you won't find it. <laughs> yeah. 
So, Jenny Curran and Michelle Macken, thank you so much for coming to 3CR thank this you so morning, much for Monday us. morning. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Terrific. Lovely to meet you both. You, you too. Thank and you. And all the great work you're doing. From October the 28th to the 31st, some of the worst climate criminals will be gathering for the International Mining Conference, IMARC, at the Melbourne Convention Centre. Blockade IMARC is an activist alliance committed to putting a stop to the mass destruction caused by extractive industries across the globe and the harm they cause to communities and ecosystems. We need your help to be part of this blockade. Find out how at blockadeimark.com or check out our Facebook page, Blockade IMARC. A 3CR supporter. Victoria's roadside drug testing program is not about road safety. In last year's governmental inquiry into drug law reform, it was noted that Victoria's RDT program is falling behind on latest evidence regarding impairment. Currently, Victoria Police can charge people for detection of either cannabis, amphetamines or MDMA. But those detections do not correlate with impairment. Impaired drivers should be removed from the roads and that's why we're urging an inquiry into Victoria's RDT scheme to ensure that the resources that are currently employed to make our roads safer are being properly used to make our roads safer. Help us refocus road safety onto what makes roads safe. Sign the e-petition, parliament.vic.gov.au forward slash council forward slash petitions and look for the Inquiry into Drug Driving Reform, Petition 117. A 3CR supporter. You're on 3CR 855 AM. Tamil Refugee Council invites you to a free screening of No Fire Zone. The Killing Fields of Sri Lanka. It's an award-winning investigative documentary by Callum McRae about the final weeks of the war in 2009 and the post-war reality. Originally released in 2013, the film has been shown around the world, including at the UN Human Rights Council. Tonight, Monday the 16th of September from 6.45pm at Room 10, Level 11, RMIT Building, 84. 45 Swanson Street, Melbourne. I can't even uh, read. RMIT Building 80, Room 10 at Level 11 at 445 Swanson Street, Melbourne from the Tamil Refugee Council. And now we've got Richard Muffet. Did I say that right, Muffet? You did. Oh, fantastic. Um, in the studio, and I went to go and see Broken River, which was at uh, La Mama's Theatre, and it was the first Fringe event at the theatre. I went there on Friday to see the um, the Broken River play that Richard has directed, and it's a fictional expose of the dark underworld lying beneath the surface of crime and its policing in present-day Melbourne. So, Richard, firstly, thank you for coming into the studio. It's great to be here again, Tracy. Oh, ah, how many decades? It's fantastic. God, just over four. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And it's still going strong, and we love it. Yeah. We love it. Well, it's great to see all the posters around. It's just fantastic. Oh, thank you. So, firstly, can you give us a little introduction on Broken River? 
Well, as you read out, it's a fictional expose of actually um, a particular crime that happened in the 1970s, 19, up to the 1990s in Victoria, which involved uh, a corrupt cop and a transvestite prostitute, and eventually the corrupt cop's sister-in-law, which doesn't get included in this particular play. And um, the whole thing was kind of swept under the carpet. Nothing was ever really done about it. There was an attempt to try and bring the person to justice. That didn't succeed. So what Tony Reck, the writer, has done is to give us a... Uh, a kind of revelation of the way in which things work mm. in this city, in any city where the system keeps on working in its particular way against the individuals and the individuals have to fight back. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I was actually going to ask, is it based on a true story? Because it, it, yeah. it has mm. that, um, you know, like the Kathy Pentecost. Pendingill. Well, that's the other side of the story. I mean, mm. that that particular family is set in Richmond. That's the Pendingill family, mm. and uh, the cop section of the story is set in St Kilda, and he's merged the two of them together. Mm. Yeah, oh, yeah. it was just fabulous. Mm. And all the characters throughout Broken River have these really twisted, sort of not strange relationships, but really complicated relationships with each other, and especially the mother of the criminal family, Marlene, yes. and the relationship that she has with her sons. Yes, it's a wonderful. <coughs> excuse me. It's a wonderful look at the toughness of a person, and underlying that toughness, the desire to keep the family together, and actually the love for that family, even though she says she could kill them if they crossed her. And she would. And I she would. It. I believe it. Yeah, She's 100%. a tough old battle axe. Yep, yeah, she sure is. But what was it like? Um, what was it like directing that sort of those sort of relationships? Yeah, pretty interesting. I mean, you have to get beneath the plot itself, which is very complicated, and uh, you know, pieces it together a bit like a jigsaw puzzle, and try and go, okay, but what's making these people tick? Mm. Uh, where is the moment of humanity in them? Where do they reveal something about themselves that the action that they're involved in doesn't? So that it gets a bit away from both newspaper headlines and also the kind of normal action cop movie kind of scenario where the whole thing is taken up with the excitement. Theatre can't do that as well as movies can. What theatre can do is to say, but take a look at these particular people and try and understand them a bit more closely. And so that was the task that we had. Mm. And it was a huge task because La Mama's a tiny little theatre mm. and this is a play with, you know, upwards of 12 different characters and about 26 different locations that keep on moving. So we thought, how on earth are we going to put it into the theatre? But in some kind of way, the narrowness of the parameters work to create a, a particular focus and rigour that you have to bring to the work as you're working on it, as you're doing it in rehearsal. So, long answer, but it was a complicated process. Mm. Tony had written it, influenced by film, influenced by film noir, etc., etc., David Lynch, and he wrote it a bit filmically, and we had to try and find a way of making that into a theatrical language. I thought, actually, at the time when I was watching it, because as you said, it is a small theatre, mm. so you had to be really creative. Um, and there's all, there's all these layers of corruption throughout, and the actual set, there's all these layers that, is are sort of 
the actors are working around the whole time. Yeah. And I thought that was a really interesting link between the story and then actually creatively, physically, what you're seeing on stage. And quite often that kind of stuff is serendipitous. I mean, we looked at the courthouse and thought, where can we put all these locations? And we decided to put them on where the seating bank normally is and mm. to change the seating bank. But, of course, as you say, what it does is create a metaphor for the hierarchy of the whole thing. Mm. So the cop lives up the top and the cop walks down and he... Um, he dominates the other people with, as he says, power and pragmatism is power. Yep, yep. And how important is it to be discussing these themes? I know, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a case that you're retelling, but it's still very prevalent now, the discussion yep. of the corruption, especially there's a sort of three sides of it in the play, which is the police, the brotherhood and the criminal underworld yep. that is relayed out by this family. But how is it important to still be talking about this? In theatre especially. I think it's always, I mean, I think it's always important to be talking about this. 3CR talks about this and has talked about this kind of stuff for decades. And La has put on stuff like this for decades and I've been trying to focus on it as well. I mean, to paraphrase Chairman Mao in a really bad way, you've got to <laughs> stop being taken in by the illusions and keep the struggle going. Mm. And we are so, it is so easy these days to be taken in by the illusions because they are crammed down our throats, they seduce us all the time. And sometime or other we've got to actually go, no, wait on, what's go- actually going on? And I think small theatre, like small radio stations, can do it the best because they don't have to buy into a larger network of pressures that come for larger theatre and for film and television. Well, I, I love what you've just said. Mm. <laughs> I think yeah. it's so important. It and right now, especially for those voices to be heard, well, it is, and you know, um, and we see all around the world. I mean, Tony, the the writer, says that, you know, one of the big inspirations for him when he suddenly realised when Donald Trump came into power, and then two flights above him from where he lives in the high rises in Richmond, someone was killed, and he thought to himself, okay, criminality has arrived at the doorstep. I better do something about this. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the world that we're living in now, and and it is so easy to just kind of close our eyes to it and keep going and think let's hope things change Mm. well they won't unless we keep on revealing it in some way not cramming it down people's throats but revealing it Mm -hmm. do you think um much has changed since the case in the 70s with the police and the corruption in victoria to now look i'm not an expert on that kind of stuff i couldn't really say it seems to me that as Janae said, the other side of the police are always the criminals and the other side of the criminals are always the police. And one of the characters says in the play, criminals and cops are the two sides of the one thing. And I think that that generalises. I think that there are criminals who are pushed into criminality and there are cops who are really good. But I think there's an underlying possibility for corruption in any kind of systemic situation of power like that and the police no more than no less than anyone else and uh, we think of them as our guardians well forget it (laughs) and how has it been how has it been received the production so far I think it splits audiences. I think some audiences find it really bleak and really hard. It's uh, it's a tough look at things. It doesn't allow us so many 
films do and television does, an individual to come out as a hero and to defeat the whole system. The system, unfortunately, ends up winning. But a lot of people are really going, but that was a fascinating jigsaw puzzle of a narrative to follow. And there's a lot of heart in there, the, the character of the transvestite singer, provides a whole warmth at the centre of the thing and um, and there are two sacrificial innocent characters who really do receive their sacrifice but despite mm. all of that there's some kind of possibility of looking at how do we fight back against that and um, that's the aim of the production I guess. Yeah. Mm. And how, how much longer is it on for? It's only on for another week. It starts on Wednesday again and it goes through till Sunday. La Mama keeps pouring them out, putting them on one after <laughs> the other, which is fantastic. Uh, so yes, there's only another four nights, I think it is. Mm. Mm. Wow, that's not long at all. No. Listeners, get yeah. on. How can I get a ticket? How can I see this? Uh, well, to get on to the La Mama website. Mm. Yeah, yeah, or we'll phone La Mama. <laughs> phone La Mama. I, I, really, right. I like just phoning, you know. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. You can have a conversation about which things you, you can, want. You can. Yeah. That's right. It was yeah. a really fantastic production, and it left. I left with um, questions, and yeah, it was one of those things that you do see, and and you everyone was sort of quiet when they left because you have to really digest what you what you know you've just seen. That's right. And that's right. there were parts of it when I was like, oh, this is this is fantasy, surely. And yeah. then I'm like, but it's not. Hmm. It's actually not. Well, there are times that fantasy approach re- pro- approaches reality better than realism does, mm. I think, because. Real, um, reality is always weirder than fiction can ever make Indeed, I <laughs> totally, totally agree with that. Yes. Look at Donald Trump. Yes, yeah. indeed. Who would have thought? Exactly. Mm. Thank you so much for joining us today, Thanks so Richard. much, for it, Alice. It's great to be here. Yeah. Lovely to be here again. Oh, okay. thank you. And so, really, that's the end of the show now. So, that's... Monday breakfast. And we've had some wonderful guests this morning and so many people who've come in, which has enlivened the studio enormously. <laughs> so we had Tom Bowerman at 715, Director of Innovation at Berry Street, talking to us about the teaching family model um, and children in care. Yeah. And at uh, 7.30 we had Greg Denham talking to us about uh, not drug prohibition, but, yeah, you know. Drug, drug issues, current drug issues, issues yep. that we can all be thinking about, yeah. And then we had uh, Professor Nicole Lee as well, who looked in depth at uh, proposed legislation to, to drug test uh, young people. Welfare, love, uh, and yeah. compassion, she said. Well, oh, my God. You know what? That's how it's been promoted by mm. the government. Oh, I, yeah. I talk about Newspeak and, yeah. you know, 1984. It's, um, yeah, it's unbelievable. Anyway, she certainly shot holes through that idea really well. And then we had Jenny Curran and uh, Michelle from the Outfall Dodger Studio, and we've just had Richard, Richard Murphy, Murphy in the studio. Yeah, so stay tuned for Women on the Line, and see you next week. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton, or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events. Thanks for listening to a Monday Breakfast podcast on 3CR.